welcome back to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. It's UK Election Day 2017, and in this conversation recorded on Tuesday night, our host Sally Warhaft spoke about elections across Europe with a couple of guests that I'll let her introduce. But first up... It's our 100th Fifth Estate. So... Uh, I, I was only just told that, so um, it feels like it too. Just you know, I feel a lot older than when I first did this, uh, and it is a great uh, pleasure to be here and to be talking well about the issues we're going to be discussing tonight around the elections across Europe. We've focused a lot in this series on countries and uh, parts of the world focused a lot on the United States and the Middle East and Asia. Uh, And, of course, tonight we turn our focus to Europe. And we've got two really interesting guests with very different uh, experiences uh, and knowledge about Europe. Mary Girin is a former Europe correspondent, of course, for the ABC. She was based in the London Bureau for four years uh, and left... uh, Was it late 2015, Mary? That's right, yep. And uh, previously, she's worked for 7.30 Report and Late Line, and she now has the very, very coveted job of ABC's national sport correspondent, something I can only aspire to. Wow. Um, thank you for, for joining us My tonight. And Georgina Downer is the adjunct fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs. She's worked previously as a diplomat at the Australian Embassy in Tokyo and in various positions at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and uh, her experience in foreign policy includes a post as Director of AsiaLink Diplomacy at the University of Melbourne um, and uh, all sorts of other things as well. A big welcome to you both. Thank you. So... Uh, We'll begin tonight in the UK because, of course, the election is on Thursday and uh, Theresa May, uh, the big lead that she had when she called the snap election, I think, seven weeks ago, has uh, evaporated Mm -hmm. quite rapidly. Uh, I think it would be a really brave pundit to try and predict the outcome of any election anywhere in the world (laughs) right now. Um, But... I'd just like your sort of reading of, of, of what's going on over there. And uh, we'll start with you, Georgina. Well, you're, you're right, Sally. Um, Theresa May started out seven weeks ago with a 20-point lead, and the polls now have her... Some polls have her now just one point ahead. Some have her 12 points ahead. What I'm hearing from people in the UK on the ground um, is that she's doing much better than the polls indicate. There are a few issues. The polls in England especially have been bad at predicting elections. Uh, The YouGov poll, which is quite a respected one, has changed the way it... um, it's assuming who's going to turn out, which means that the young vote is much more represented in that poll than it has been in the past. And that's skewing it to the Labor Party. But, um, you know, it is really anyone's guess. What we're seeing um, when you see disaggregated polls is that the Conservatives are doing well with older people, even working-class older people, but they have 
very little support amongst young people. I mean, under 35, the support levels are for labour are, are well into the 60s. Um, percent. So that's a, that's a problem for the future of the Conservative Party. Um, but I still think we'll probably see a Conservative majority somewhere in the realm of 50 or so seats, especially because the Labor Party does not look like it's going to recover in Scotland. It's a problem not just for the Conservative Party, though. It's a problem for the kingdom, isn't it? That And the Brexit result really revealed uh, that age was just such a massive division, uh, more than perhaps class or other um, traditional, uh, you know, things that, that we thought of as dividing. Age and regions, yeah, I think that's right. So um, there's, there's, a strong, there's a strong shift from Labor to the Conservatives in the North and in the Midlands. Um, and that's, you know, we're looking at seats that have never been held by the Conservatives that because they voted so strongly to, to leave the EU are now being predicted to, to, go, um, to go to the Conservatives because the Conservatives uh, are seen as the proper party of Brexit now. They've sort of inherited that UKIP uh, man mantle of the Brexit party, um, whereas Labor... Despite uh, Labor actually saying it, it's happy to go ahead with Brexit, although it'll do what what is called a soft Brexit, um, it, it's not seen as so strong on Brexit. So those very strong Leave constituencies in the north, which tend to be more working class, which tend to be more Labor heartland, look like they're going to shift to the Conservatives. Um, uh, but then where you've got young communities, university towns, very much going to be Labor or, or Liberal Democrat, although Lib Liberal Democrats have been, had a shocker of a campaign. They're really mm -hmm. going into electoral oblivion. When you left, Mary, David Cameron had been Prime Minister for years, the whole time you were there. That's right. Uh, and I, I guess he assumed that the Brexit vote was going to fall his way. That's um, right. It was all just going to be a harmless uh, little exercise, wasn't it, at some point? <laughs> How much has it surprised you what has happened since you left? And, and in now looking back, were yeah. there signs, do you think, that were really obviously missed? I th well, I think that um, you know anyone with the benefit of hindsight will go back and actually see that it was there. Um, I, I agree with you talking about polls that are just so hard to read. It's an enduring memory of mine. I think it should just stay with all pollsters forever as some permanent nightmare um, that they should have up there, the results of the um, election that actually the Conservatives won, because that was, of course, supposed to be the hung parliament. And I remember the ABC Bureau being all doing all of the sums and, you know, figuring out what happens with the hung parliament. We're all on edge. And I was there next to Anthony Green. And then the exit polls came out and it was like, they're well ahead. And I think Anthony had this involuntary throwing up of the hands. It was like, oh, what's happening here? And, and everyone, you know, was just so taken aback. And I think that you're absolutely right, Georgina, in terms of um, the methods of the polling have changed, uh, have not been accurate enough. It's really set this... Uh, from, that, from then onwards, we've had to look at the UK in a really different way in terms of predictions. Um, in terms of also the age gap, I agree with you. When I was there, of course, there was the Scottish referendum and they actually lowered the age there to vote, as you might remember. 
and there was this big sense of disappointment that they couldn't go on to keep voting, you know, straight away in, in, in the next election. Uh, and, and that wave of, uh, of youth that is, is being, uh, was politicised at that point, you know, can't be underestimated. And of course, we know that Scottish Labor really did fail there within the election, but there is this, you know, um, other block of, of votes up there that are quite important to remember. Interestingly, I've been reading a, the, a few articles saying, we thought Jeremy Corbyn was a clown, comma, but now we are changing our minds. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, this is in the media and it's not widespread, but I think that it's an interesting possibility that this disruptor um, love that is sweeping the world. You look from, you know, well, Obama in, in certain um, uh, interpretations through to Trump and through to Brexit and so forth, that that could be the thing that, in fact, is actually going to just lift Jeremy Corbyn's uh, uh, results and prospects. That it could just be that, you know, the electorate of uh, the UK is, yes, looking forward to Brexit, but really, you know, then with terror happening, you know, it's it's this sense of needing to shake things up. Um, I also am not going to make any, um, any uh, real predictions here, but I do think that that's part of the reason why it's just so hard to read. As a shake-up, it's a pretty unimpressive lineup. You know, you've got the <laughs> Oxford-educated former Bank of England consultant Theresa May, and then you've got the former union activist Jeremy Corbyn. It's actually so 1970s uh, <laughs> that you wonder if actually the UK is sort of trying to do an anti-disruptor uh, and just look for some stability in some, in some ways. Um, I was uh, in London about three years ago uh, and I, I, got, I went to the embassy and got a ticket to go and see the Prime Minister's question time, which I'd wanted to do all my life, and it was so fantastic. <laughs> uh, and what was great about it, I mean, everything for me, but, but was the quality of the debate. And it was just, an, it was a pretty ordinary, you know, morning. There was nothing um, hyper, you know, fancy going on or uh, no crisis going on. Uh, but I noticed uh, that just the quality of the language, the quality of the speeches, the, uh, the manners. You know, the Speaker of the House actually pulled somebody up, um, you know, for referring to someone else in the, in, the, in the chamber as he said. And he was stopped instantly. Excuse me, but that's, there's no he's in here. It's the member for. Um, and, and, it, and the diversity... Uh, there too impressed me compared to here. And I, I'd like to hear from each of you your your sense of whether this was just a, uh, you know, glossy-eyed Australian political junkie getting an <laughs> international fix or whether there was something substantive to that observation. I, I think PMQ's Prime Minister's Questions is um, a sight to behold. Um, it's, there is an incredible level of sophistication in the way they debate. Um, I mean, Theresa May is from o Oxford. A lot of them are part of that sort of Oxford Union debating tradition. So that you know, the quick one-liners are are um, are very common, and you know, some of the greatest quotes in in Western democracies have come out of that chamber. Um, in terms of diversity. Um, 
I mean, they've got over 600 MPs mm. there, so they've got a lot more to choose from than our, than our, uh, than our House of Representatives of 150. So I guess you're going to get that level of diversity. Um, perhaps Britain, it's a bit more multicultural, um, especially at that, um, at that level. So um, you would get more diversity from that perspective. But um, the Conservative Party has done a lot in recent years to improve, especially under Theresa May, to improve the representation of women particularly, uh, and, the, and the Labor Party as well. So that would contribute to the level of diversity. I completely agree that I was struck um, the level, the standard of public discourse when I first got there. I felt like a bumpkin as well. I was just, oh my goodness, this... I can't believe how well they speak about politics. The politics was more nuanced, um, agreed there are more MPs, but for instance, you would have open discussion about what sort of conservative member this person was or what, you know, where they lay on the spectrum in a much more nuanced way than we have here. I felt like the interplay between the media and the politicians was and I think remains still so much better. At the time, David Cameron would regularly appear on the Andrew Marr show on BBC and would sit and whatever you might think about David Cameron, he would a answer a question. He would actually, yeah, yeah. you know, you would ask him and he would get to the nub of what you were talking about. There were sometimes, you know, there were the, you know, the distracting phrases and so forth, but eventually he would get to it. And Andrew Marr wasn't going to let him get away with it. At the time, we had a Prime Minister in Australia who wasn't appearing on the ABC. And it struck me as, you know, very much a feeling of, mm, why can't we do this? Why can't we, as a society, do this? Why can't we, you know, have this sort of interplay between politics and media? I think it helps also that there's a great depth and variety of media in the UK. Uh, it helps keep everybody on their toes. Mm. I, 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 uh, I'm quite pessimistic, I suppose, about the state of Western politics uh, and democracy and... Uh, and it just made me wonder, remembering that experience and thinking about this election in thinking about tonight, uh, whether actually the UK is kind of holding up a bit, uh, a bit better or whether it's just 40 years behind uh, and there's a, there's a sort of a revolution to come or, uh, I, I mean, who, who knows? Uh, Georgina, you worked as a researcher, I noticed in your CV, for the Baroness Howe of Idlicote. That's right. In the House awesome. of Lords, which uh, I just blew my mind. I had to Google her and she sounded remarkable. She's gorgeous. But as a researcher working in that environment, what was your experience? Well, so I worked in the House of Lords, not the House of Commons, mm. so completely different atmosphere. Um, some some uh, hereditary lords, and then she was a crossbench peer, but married to... This was rather sort of bizarre, actually. She was married to Geoffrey Howe, and for any of you in the audience who know your British political history, he was Margaret Thatcher's foreign secretary and part of, part of the reason why Margaret Thatcher resigned um, in the early 90s because he was a Europhile and she was a Eurosceptic and had a massive split. Margaret Thatcher, growing up for me, Margaret Thatcher was my, my idol. So to work for the wife of Geoffrey Howe was quite a, quite a sort of a, um, a curious situation to be in. But um, these, so the crossbenchers are, are appointed basically because they've made a, a contribution to a particular 
area of society. So um, they they have a um, all have an incredible sense of duty um, and carry themselves out in quite a sort of, I found, quite an honourable way. So you don't get a lot of the rough and tumble of the House of Commons and the, you know, for, ferocious debates. It's it's much more gentlemanly in that in that sense. Um, there's quite a lot of collaboration, deep thinking research, like you would get, I guess, in the Senate with um, more sort of deeper dives into policy. But, um, you know, of course, you're in Westminster, steeped in hundreds of years of tradition, which is fabulous in itself. And the people you see in the Lords are you know, often very senior politicians who've retired and uh, seeing out their retirement in the Lords. So, of course, Baroness Thatcher was there, which I was delighted to see. She was still alive then. Um, uh, and uh, and seeing those those people who, in Australian political life, would would retire and you know we have John Howard, Paul Keating occasionally make a quip in political life, but are not actively engaged. Well, these people are still actively engaged in their their House of Review in the House of Lords, which is quite a, a curious situation as well. Mm. Um, we'll uh, talk about. I mean it, uh, the. The terrorist incidents, the, there's been three pretty close together with Westminster, Manchester and then the London Bridge uh, area just a few days ago. It no longer uh, necessarily holds true that it is something that benefits conservative parties, which research has shown um, it tended to. Uh, and I wonder... Uh, you know, if there's anything you've seen on on how this is playing into this this current uh, election in the days leading up to it. Well, I think we were talking just before about how um, the polls didn't seem to move very much uh, before this uh, last one, um, which is potentially surprising when that happened after Manchester. Um, I do think that it is not inevitable that there needs to be this grand surge towards the, the Conservatives or indeed far-right when you're talking about uh, Europe, after all France, that has had uh, quite a number of attacks uh, in recent times and obviously through its history, uh, has just uh, appointed a centrist, as we know, and that this is not necessarily an inevitable wave of history. Um, of course, you would have to think that it would favour the incumbent. Um, that's just common sense. But um, as I say, I think that the rules are now that there are no rules. I think the quote is the new normal is that there is no normal. And um, it is, it's just simply too hard to predict in that sense. And we've seen, as I say, across Europe, not a necessarily uniform uh, move when, when security and indeed economy is also really shaken. You covered the terrorist attacks in Paris in 2015, Mary. Tell us about that experience. It was an extraordinary experience. So that was the one that began with the attack on Charlie Hebdo, the satirical magazine. Um, we heard that there was this attack on that magazine and, of course, it had been uh, the target of terrorist uh, uh, threats and attempted uh, attacks because of its previous um, covers that were considered uh, completely offensive. Uh, so we started that rush over, and as you might recall, in the next 24 hours or so, then there was that other siege that happened in the um, Jewish uh, delic delicatessen in another part of um, 
Paris. And then that led to a siege just outside of Paris as well. Um, so, yes, I was there and it was um, extraordinary. And the thing that I remember most is the one million, I think, or one and a half million people who came out after that all, uh, you know, it was sorted in the, in the sense that those sieges had ended and came out that next weekend, I don't know if you remember, but there was this massive uh, protest of we will not be defeated. I haven't seen it since. I mean, you know, that doesn't happen every time, obviously. But it was such an amazing force. I remember speaking to a lot of people, um, as much as I could with my French. I remember being with my... Um, uh, in a taxi, and this um, taxi driver, who was born in France, uh, and said to me at the time, we, this, will not, that, this will not make us change. This will not have us, you know, reject... Um, immigration. We we will we'll, we have always been accepting. Now this was a French a, a Parisian talking, and as many people will say, Paris is very different to the rest of the country, as Londoners are different to the UK and so forth. But to me, it was that um, really strong sense within the Parisian community that um, it it would not result in fear or a closing of hearts at that point. Of course, when. Uh Donald Trump was elected last year and then the, the sort of flurry of European elections that were to follow uh, uh, and the, the terrorist incidents uh, that, have, uh, that have occurred in between and prior to Trump, uh, there were a lot of predictions about a sort of surge of the far right across Europe. Um, and it was really frightening. I found it quite a frightening prospect. But it, it so far hasn't come to pass, and in fact that anecdote about the taxi driver, um, it, certainly in the French elections, uh, would, would seem to have been borne out, even though Marine Le Pen got quite a big share of the vote. She was soundly defeated. What, Georgina, did you make of that election? Um, I think um, in the end, like uh, when Marine Le Pen's father ran in the, sec in the runoff election in 2002, you, you got the rallying of all the centrist, the centre-right, the centre-left forces against her. So it was always going to be incredibly difficult for her to, her to win. Um, the, the problem for Macron, who was, who was um, successful, who, who ran as an independent but had been Francois Hollande's uh, economy minister, so I, I, sort of, I sort of call him a socialist in a different ma name. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's on the right of the Socialist Party. Um, he's got a new brand on Marsh. He, he, he certainly traded on being a, um, not a partisan, completely above the whole left-right divide, and, uh, and that hopefully for him will be the key to his success. He will bring the right of the socialists, um, the, the left or the more sort of moderate of the conservative Republicans together and, and hopefully drive a reform agenda like Hollande had been trying to do but very unsuccessfully. Uh, but if he, if he doesn't drive that agenda um, and he has some really big challenges in the um, assembly elections, which start this weekend... Um, if he can't drive that agenda, then then Le Pen will will rise again in 2022 when the next presidential election is up. And and look, you, you speak to to um, watchers of French politics, and they say 
2017 was not the main game for Marine Le Pen. It's 2022. When she ran in 2012, she was not talking about winning in 2012 or 2017. She was talking about winning in 2022. Uh, so, uh, look, Macron, this is, this is um, a, a pivotal moment in French history. He is offering... Uh, the hope of reform um, of the economy, but in return he wants further European integration. Now, the 35-odd percent of people who voted for Front National, they're not so keen on further European integration. In fact, France has quite a strong Eurosceptic population. So he's got to, Macron has got to deliver strong results in the reform agenda that that benefit people, that, pe that people see tangible benefits in their lives um, from in order to get agreement to force through that further European integration. And that, that's not just a question for France, it's going to be a question for Germany uh, and other European countries as well. If they do go down the, the um, avenue of further European integration, so less and less power to sovereign governments, to elected governments, and more and more power devolved to the European Union, what are you going to give your citizens in return for that? I, I think I completely agree with you. I think that it was, um, you know, just how the dice of history fell, that it just wasn't Le Pen, although, and as you say, she will no doubt get stronger. And I think you could say the same about the Netherlands elections and uh, the Austrian uh, president as well, that, you know, there were close-run things, it was supposed to be a far-right and didn't end up that way, but who knows in the next few years, and it does depend on what happens with the EU. I think that what was striking about Macron's victory is that he really presented a truly optimistic view of Europe. And yes, I think he came in as a disruptor as well. I think he, he benefited from that, even though he definitely had his... Um, he, he was steeped in the establishment of it and had the centrists go around him. But um, when he presented that story, this new story of Europe, which after all is you know, really facing an existential crisis. He got support, and it's possibly, you know, one of the few times where people have voted uh, towards uh, the EU, thinking perhaps this is going to be a good thing. He has said, but I want to reform it. He has said that he wants to have this really strong Franco-German spine now to the EU, but he's also acknowledging that there is anger amongst the people. You're right. And he's laid it on the line. If he doesn't actually give then his people something back, that everyone wants reforms. Let's not forget, it's not just the far right who always wanted reforms of the EU. I was in Greece during the protracted um, you know, negotiations there where they almost left, uh, you know, and there were... You know, it was the poor and the poorest country and the poor of the poorest country who wanted to leave the EU. Um, Spain as well, you know, spoke to people who were, who had people who'd committed suicide because uh, they couldn't pay their rents anymore. And they're not only, if they though commit suicide or when they die, what they owe on their apartments is passed down to their children. And this was because of austerity measures. You don't get worse... PR for EU um, than, than this, um, you know, the financial crisis in Cyprus as well. So it's not just the, you know, the 
richer nations that don't like those poorer nations mucking it up down there. But the EU as a whole has needed to prove itself. And if, if one thing can be taken out of it, because like, I'm this permanent optimist, I know you were saying you're <laughs> pessimistic, but I do feel like this was the crisis the EU's had to have. Uh, they're no longer complacent. Angela Merkel has said, well, we can't rely on the US anymore, and this is going to be really the kick that they all need. Well, and I, I, I think, um, just to add to that, Brexit was the kick they all needed. Um, the UK never sat comfortably in the EU, and, and whilst if you're a Europhile, you will see Brexit as a tragedy, in fact, I think it really is an opportunity for the EU. And you've seen since Brexit those far-right parties, the, the hard-line Eurosceptic parties throughout Europe not doing very well. Well, you know, there are a whole range of reasons for that, but I, I wonder if one of the reasons is that... Brexit has has for, has inspired a sense in Europe that okay, well, you know, we we realise it was bad and the UK is leaving, but actually we're now going to try and fix this because it might be better to keep this model for us. Um, continental Europeans and try and fix it and reform it and maybe devolve some, some more powers back to the people um, rather than cede control to far-right parties and, and break up the European Union. It was like a pressure valve was let off, yeah. wasn't it, with, with Brexit? It was like everyone's un, unthought-of nightmare had just come true and all of a sudden, yeah, they had to just throw everything out, which, which they've proven that they're prepared to do. With, they've put a plan out with five different models and, yep, they're going to have to get down to work now. Um, I wonder if Donald Trump uh, has been a negative for the European right uh, across Europe uh, to the extent that uh, Europeans obviously like to go their own way and don't like to feel that they're subservient to the USA and that his administration has been so mired in chaos uh, that it's perhaps put a dampener uh, on the idea of going for the the real outsider. Well, didn't I think it was uh, Marine Le Pen in the latter stages of her campaign um, was going silent on the support of, for or from yeah. Donald Trump. Um, so I think that there was even at that stage an acknowledgement that um, you know if there was sort of some sort of mud to be um, slung around from uh, Donald Trump, they, they didn't want it. Um, I I think that. Um, in terms of how the, the stories that Europe, you know, is going to have to tell itself in terms of how to deal with Donald Trump, with the also let's not forget Vladimir Putin and and uh, you know Xi Jinping as well. These are the these are the off stage characters that really the EU, Europe really is going to have to learn to renegotiate, and um, it's in the it's with Donald Trump's. Uh, erratic, you would say, or at least say unpredictable nature that, you know, that, uh, yeah, it could be that voters or far-right parties are saying, actually, we really need to offer something that isn't just unpredictability. You know, we need to actually be a bit more, we need to offer real plans here. We, we, we can't be seen as the same as him. Yeah, I think, it, I think Europe tends to look inward quite a lot. I don't know whether I would buy into Donald Trump has contributed to a decline in far-right support around Europe. I, I do think it's more about 
the state of the European Union and Brexit being a catalyst for reform, um, an alternative for German, Germany in Germany, which is the far-right party that had been doing well, is now not doing so well. Why is that? Well, it, it seems that actually Angela Merkel and her coalition have started to deal with the migrant crisis much more effectively. They're, they're tough on security issues. Um, European economy actually is slightly improving. It had reasonable growth over the last, um, last year of 2%, which is good for Europe. Uh, so I, I don't necessarily think that they, they look to Donald Trump with with any sense that he is going to directly influence their political um, their political climate. Um, of course, in statements at NATO and around the around the margins of NATO, you've had some concerns about his commitment to that. But but at the end of the day, he turned up to NATO and he 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 like his predecessor Barack Obama called for more at the European partners to do more to contribute to NATO and increase their defence budget. So uh, I, I think I think at a very elite level, fine, that, that, makes, that makes an impact, but I don't think at a grassroots level that's what's making an impact. I think the impact, the, the things that change people's political uh, allegiances are the, the economy and if it's improving, if people feel like the government, the status quo um, uh, are delivering, then they will be less likely to move to the fringes and, and those sort of cultural insecurities as well. So if if in Germany they're feeling like my, the migrant crisis is getting, you know, the government's got a handle on it now, then that would, I think, see less of a hemorrhage to the right or even the far left on those issues. I, I would agree with most of that. I, I would think, though, that... Um Donald Trump's challenge to uh, the Western alliance has been uh, profound. You know, he did. He came out and said NATO was irrelevant. The fact that he turned around and said that it's no longer, or was it redundant? Obsolete. 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 That's the word. During there the was, it was obsolete yeah. during the campaign, and now it's no longer obsolete. Mm. Not quite sure what happened in between. Uh, I think it was just this morning that I read that uh, the US has uh, said it might not be in the UNHCR anymore because they've got a problem with it. I think that actually I agree with you that uh, most people, you know, look towards their own circumstances when they judge these things. But Europe has a very recent sense of being under threat. Uh, you know, the, the sense of borders and you know, memory of the war is never far away. I mean, we know this. When, when we go there, you know, there's this sense of... When I say um, Franco-German, you know, like I'm thinking back to my history lessons as well, and it's never far away for anybody, um, you know, who once was aligned with whom and how we can rely on ourselves. The, so Angela Merkel's saying that now they've been, she's already discussing with Macron uh, getting a common defence Force. Now, this is a direct result, I, I believe, of Donald Trump forcing Europe into, um, you know, looking at the fact that they need to be more self-reliant, which is not a bad thing. Uh, but on the other hand, I do think that he has really taken aim uh, at, you know, the, the seams that were really putting the West together. And whether or not he actually picks them apart completely, 
well, time will tell, but I think that everyone in Europe is afraid of that. The, the common defence force idea, though, has been around for a number of years and was getting quite a lot of traction. I think it's more important now. Yeah, po possibly, possibly. But it's not, it, it was definitely something that came up during the Obama years um, and, and is more about further European integration than about giving up on NATO. And border yeah. control and so yeah. forth, which Europe had to really address. Mm. There's no doubt about that. That's true. But is it in any real way? I mean, this is... You've got Brexit. Uh, we've got countries across Europe that are uh, at least signalling all the people in these countries uh, that they want to go their own way. They don't want to be bound to, to, to what their neighbours are doing and uh, a more, in, in some ways, inward-looking world right now at the very moment in Europe where a refugee crisis and a security um, dilemma uh, is so profound uh, that that it's never Europe has never needed co cohesion and working together more. But, well, certainly since the Second World War. But I think the frustration and and, and urge to go their own way comes out of. 28 member states of Europe not actually coming up with the solution. So part of the promise of the European Union was together 28 member states or as you know it was much smaller when it was first formed can deal with these transnational crises be they you know, refugees climate change financial problems much better than than on their own but the problem is getting 28 member states to agree on any policy position has in the end become and, and ended up being way too difficult. So you do get these lowest common denominator solutions which don't really please anyone except the one person who wanted the lowest lowest common denominator solution. So I think out of out of a, a sort of global government, you know, liberal internationalist model, you've actually ended up with a whole lot of frustrated states who do think, well, you know, I, I prefer to just choose my own path. Um, and go it alone because it's because it's not it's not a system that actually does deliver those promised solutions. And yet you still have you know countries like Scotland and Ireland and so forth who desperately want to uh, keep this union alive. Um, I think that with the new models that they're talking about, Yoko had this white paper with I think five models, um, and one of them was uh, that the EU take on fewer tasks, bigger, and take a and you know, devolve back, as you say, some, you know, some of those responsibilities to countries themselves. And I think that it's that sort of discussion that's going to be the future of Europe because, yes, um, you know, the hatred, the, the visceral hatred that, you know, the Greek people had that would talk to me when they talked about Brussels, you know, uh, was, was out, you know, just gobsmacking. I mean, we don't, we think of faceless bureaucrats here. These were people who, you know, spoke a completely different language and were hundreds of kilometres away and lived in completely different circumstances, ruling their fate. That's how they saw it. And we don't really have any idea of that here. And that's what the EU has to overcome. It needs to actually be, well, if they're going to help the people, they're going to have to really rebrand themselves and re-help and redraw their relationship with Europe. It's like Greece has just completely disappeared since you came back to Australia. <laughs> like, I, I can't know. even remember. It was I thought on my, our whole, news. my whole posting was going to be about Euro crisis and then it turned into something else. Every <laughs> night, every, it was just so dominant and then yeah. it just ended. It was like a, a silencing, very yeah. 
very curious. What, what then, Georgina, is um, a pathway uh, to uh, let's take refugees because the, I mean the immigration issue is um, it is it's so heated it's so complex and it's so dominant in every one of these uh, elections. How then, if it's not going to be a European Union, uh, how I mean it, how how do you even begin to negotiate these things separately in a, in a way that will make people feel safe and and uh, to be responsible too well I, I don't I don't for a second um, think that the European Union is going to dissolve in the short even medium term um, but one of the um, conditions of European Union membership is um, freedom of movement of people. And so this has meant it's very difficult to, especially in, in some of the countries in, in Europe that share um, have a sort of a document free zone arrangement that that you ha it's very difficult to police your borders. So I mean it's a, it, it's it's so in Australia this sort of sense that you know, we're an island so you know there's always going to be a check when someone comes to Australia, be it you know a plane or a cruise ship. Um, in some of the countries of Europe, there's no, there's an absolutely no check. So that sense of complete loss of control, which of course was a, a big campaign pitch um, for Brexit, for leaving the EU um, during the referendum last year, we want to take back control. Well, I think the same can be said on the, um, in, on the continent that, um, the, especially when you had the million migrants uh, coming from. Middle East and Africa a couple of years ago, um, that sense of we have no control of our borders, who's coming or going, we don't know who these people are, we have nowhere to put these people, our societies and culture are being completely challenged and overturned by these strangers and, you know, how do we afford to look after them, that sense of utter chaos and losing control over your livelihood, so that something's got to give there. And I, mean, I do think they are they are starting to deal with it more effectively. But it's a monumental problem when you have freedom of movement. Um, whether they're going to start reinstating checks at borders, I, I don't know. It seems to be a, um, an article of faith of the EU that, that they, they retain this freedom of movement. It's, it's central to the project, but it, it's also central to the project that they keep the European Union citizens on side. So they're going to have to work out a fix between preserving that sense of control and border integrity, but also retaining that freedom of movement, which has so many benefits, of course, when you're looking at sophisticated individuals moving around for economic purposes. I... I was part of the ABC coverage of that wave of people um, and that went on for so long. And I, I do actually think, looking back, that actually that was a, a major factor when it comes to the Brexit vote. I think just the visuals of that, the optics, as they say, of, of those movements that just went on for a lot longer than I think was even um, transmitted back here. It just went on for months and months. Um, I, I, I... It was now incredible time to be a reporter on the ground because it was this utter devastation and so forth. But the people you'd meet who, for instance, were um, in Hungary, the volunteers who had come down to help, who didn't like their governments 
uh, attack on uh, approach to this. Of course, you remember they started building a fence and started um, building, you know, checkpoints where uh, there had not been. And now we know, of course, that Hungary isn't even processing any asylum seekers at the moment, neither is Poland or I think Slovakia as well. So, but within Hungary, there were people who were going down there to help this real sense of just, just humanity. It was just this, we need to help these people. The people are walking past our doors, you know, we have to go and help them. And to me, that's the future of Europe, because I agree with you. Um, it's, it's the project of Europe to have, um, you know, proper movement with protection of borders, but it's also the pragmatic uh, reality, how you go, it's one land mass and how, you know, building walls might be good for some countries, um, but it's not going to be great all over Europe. It's just not practical. So then there needs to be that, um, that uh, to address that properly. But I do feel that, um, that there was a sense of uh, a frustration also that Transcended politics. The people I was talking to were just saying, you know, this this isn't right for anybody. It's not right for the migrants. This isn't working. It's not right for us, but it's not right for the migrants. Um, you know, yeah, I don't want them taking my brother's job, but on the other hand, you know, where are they going to go? So um, that, yeah, Europe may never see that wave again because I'm sure that obviously they're they're actually doing things obviously in Africa as well, trying to stop all this happening, um, but. Uh, it will be an image that will stay with people and they will have to grapple with this. Mm. And one for Merkel uh, mm. to really have to deal with. It didn't play well for her, did it, at all? Uh, no. But, yeah, she, but she has gotten... Uh, she has uh, regained some mm. of that ground, hasn't mm. she, with those uh, restrictions. Mm. Um, and, again, that is just about listening to, to the people and listening to those fears as well. If you would like to ask a question, uh, put your hand up and uh, somebody will put a microphone in it. Yeah, hi. There's been a lot of discussion about the fear of uh, the far-right parties, but what I've observed is the lack of fear of quite left-wing politicians, and you know, particularly we've seen that with Jerry Cor Jeremy Corbyn. I would have thought perhaps the public would have seen him as unelectable, but they seem to be not uncomfortable with that. The uh, Greek government wasn't the golden dawn, so we're quite comfortable with the left wing, and I think we even saw that with Bernie Sanders. So, you know, is this a, an overall trend that we're more comfortable with left wing parties, or what? Well, if I may, um, it was extraordinary. I was reading uh, just a couple of days ago, The Guardian, quite a mainstream newspaper in the UK, has... Uh, has endorsed Jeremy Corbyn, has called for people to vote Labor and, and, and especially not vote Conservative. Um, Corbyn is um, you know, a self-professed Marxist, um, hard-left member of the Labor Party. It was extraordinary. I mean, Mary was in the UK then, I think, when he became leader. Mm. Extraordinary that someone of, from that end of the spectrum of the Labor Party could get the leadership and, and then retain it last year um, as well after the Brexit referendum when they had a, a leadership contest. He has run the most amazing campaign. He has gone from being entirely unelectable, the laughing stock of British politics. I mean, surely Theresa May, when she was on that walk 
at Easter with her husband in the Welsh countryside must have thought, this is just going to be easy, honey. Uh, I've got 20-point lead and this guy is a, a known trot, hate, basically, you know, sort of self-hating Brit. Um, he has been charming. He has enjoyed himself. He's... He's been uh, great with people. He is very good at disarming interviewers. Just, you know, they throw everything at him. You know, you like you you have allegiances to Hamas, the IRA. Your campaign manager has praised North Korea. You've written in praise of um, Hugo Chavez and the and the socialist state he he ran. None of it seems to have stuck. Amazingly, he he released a policy manifesto that was right out of the 1970s. Hard, you know, hard left, um, nationalising industries, free free tuition, um, you know, national uh, government run banks, and huge amounts of spending. A real, you know, classic tax and spend um, manifesto. And and people thought, ah, oh, that's you know, that's quite good. I, I'd get some out of that, whereas the Conservatives kept with the austerity, st austerity push um, and have seen sort of uh, reinforced the kind of the Tories are the nasty party image. And, and with that, I think, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, um, that people had such low expectations of him that he has defied them all and now none of this hard left, whatever the Conservatives throw at him, that sort of hard left, Hamas-loving, IRA, you know, best mate of stuff it seems to be sticking. So what we've seen in at least the UK has been a, a resurgence of support for the Labor Party, not much of a crash for the Conservative Party in support, but a resurgence of support. So they have this charming previously unelectable but now eminently electable in in um, quite a proportion of the electorate's eyes um, leader there's something of the Bernie Sanders very much so um, yeah. authenticity though yes. isn't it that, that yeah. on either side or any side at the moment if some somebody can stand out by just even a sense that they're being themselves yeah absolutely there's that it's the cut through of someone being themselves uh, but there's also the vision thing I think that people are craving parties that actually look different from each other. Mm. And I think that what Ed Miliband, you know, he failed on quite a few levels um, when he was up against uh, David Cameron. But people were sick of him and also the parties just look too much alike. Mm. Uh, and I think that Jeremy Corman offers them, you know, oh, actually, he does stand for something. He's a bit different, isn't he? Again, I think it's a disruptor thing that helps. Um, yeah, and in Greece, of course, back to your question, I think that Alexis Tsipras by the end became pretty centrist. And in, and I do think they have a fear of the far left there, that they, there is a violent aspect to that. I think when violence is associated with far right groups, which it often is, um, you know, obviously there is that fear and that's why it's, it's you know, portrayed that way. Um, but, yeah, I think that by the end he's, he was definitely the sensible... Um, at least the, 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 you know, the devil they had to have. So you mentioned there Greece, and obviously we've talked about France, both of whom have tended towards the centre in recent years, compared to the UK, where there's just been a complete collapse of centre parties, both within the two main parties, but the Lib Dems are just gone. Um, what have those countries done to support that kind of centre? Is it a problem that the UK doesn't have that centre anymore? Why has it collapsed there when it hasn't done so much in other countries? 
Has it collapsed I, in yeah, the UK? I, 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 I don't know. If, I mean, you, you sound like you might be from that part of the world, so you probably have a view. Um, <clears throat> I don't know whether it, whether it has totally collapsed. I, I think Jeremy Corbyn is obviously not of the sort of Blairite tradition, quite the opposite. In fact, he has completely repudiated New Labor, which was, um, you know, Tony Blair's answer to Labor's electoral misfortunes of the 1980s and 90s was to basically bring about a pro-market um, uh, reformist Labor Party. Um, yeah, to, Jeremy Corbyn's repudiated that. But you've got to remember that the Labor Party, British Labor Party, the party room, does not like Jeremy Corbyn. Most of the Labor MPs voted against him last year in the leadership contest. It's some, I didn't write the figure down, but it, it was something like 160 to 40 voted against him, voted for the um, the uh, the other the other candidate, Owen Smith. So. I don't know whether the Labor Party par parliamentary team is is on board with this sort of move away from the centre, but it's the grassroots members um, of the Labor Party who have a vote in these leadership contests that are very much moving away from the centre. I think the Conservatives, in actual fact, are... are also rejecting their legacy, the Thatcherite legacy, um, they they have uh, Theresa May has been criticised by a lot on the right of the Conservative Party for being red Theresa. I mean, she's she's got a lot of big government, big spending policies she's committing to um, that that arguably are more of the of that sort of um, I guess Christian Democrat tradition of Angela Merkel um, rather than your Thatcherite New Right tradition of the you know the Thatcher Reagan era of um, you know the free market and small government, low taxes, is is under serious threat from from leaders like Theresa May, who um, who are really she is repudiating that legacy, and I think returning to a you know the one nation conservative movement of of you know noblesse oblige and um, the state and the government is here to to look after you. I'd agree with that. I think that when I was there, I always was struck by um, Tories was almost the most Tory thing about them. The name Tories always used to strike some sort of, you know, note of that it was going to be this ultra right wing thing. And I got to um, got to England and realised actually they weren't afraid to be quite centre right, you know, in the Tory party, especially under David Cameron, of course. Um, and that, yeah, that she has continued that tradition. So it's, it's almost like we've got a bit of a disconnect uh, a little from our those, those, the way we see the politics here. Are oh, those pesky voters having a say in the leadership? <laughs> Just <laughs> imagine. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, until recently, I've been studying and living in the Netherlands for a year and at a, at a university with lots of young people from all over Europe being there. And one thing that was obvious and everyone would talk about was um, young adult and youth underemployment. And I was just wondering what you see between that issue and some of the things like you were saying, the split in the Brexit vote between age on that, on that demographic split and then also about Europe needing to deliver tangible benefits for people to continue with it. And I was just wondering your observations around youth unemployment, underemployment and, and the links with your elections across Europe. 
can I answer not like an economist? <laughs> um, to me, it, that brings to mind uh, there was the shocking figure now that I can't quite remember in Greece. I think it was something like 50% of all young people were unemployed at the time. Um, and it, just incredibly shocking. Um, and I think it's about the stories that come from that. For, so the story that came from that for people was that, you know, it was the, it was these faceless people in Brussels that did it. Um, same with uh, Spain as well, which I was reading a fascinating um, analysis of Spain that says that uh, they don't have the same uh, correlation in their identity between um, nationalism and uh, between immigration and uh and their economic circumstances. In other words, they're not necessarily going to blame immigrants for their um, for their economy. They just that's just not part of how they think about themselves. Whereas uh, through Northern Europe, that is much more of a phenomenon. So you know, um, and and we've seen that for it's, it's not a new thing. It's it's for decades. So I think that it's interesting. Uh, it would have been fascinating to be in the Netherlands during that period and to see that because obviously that seems very much like a country that was um, you know split very much between two stories. You know, does it mean that you should reach out and towards Europe and have a you know negotiated answer or does it mean pushing people away? It, there's a paradox too in that uh, there, there is this really high youth unemployment but there, there also aren't enough young people and not enough babies being born mm. in Europe to sustain the, the, the economies over there. That's right. And, and, and something that, um, you know, there's a lot of commentary about the, the nature of the political debate in the UK in this election at the moment and that it's not at all been about how does the UK deal with the demographic crisis it's facing, that it has, an like we do here in Australia, an ageing population, and this is the same for all of Europe, of course, an ageing population, a growing pension bill, obviously a growing health bill, that you have to care for the, the elderly, and, a, and an ever-decreasing, as a you know, relatively speaking, proportion of young people who will be doing the work and paying the taxes to pay the pensions and pay the health bills. And that, I mean, that hasn't come out in the in the UK election debates. How, how are long-term they're going to deal with that? Theresa May dipped her toe in the water and uh, got a huge backlash, which probably was the catalyst, to, I think, to a lot of that support flowing to the Labor Party. There's a complete refusal to deal with these really difficult issues. It's about, you know, intergenerational debt and theft and, and the trade-offs who, you know, our, our parents will get a better deal than we will and our children will. So in terms of pensions and, and taxes and who, you know, what we get in retirement, so it, it's something that is completely unresolved and going to be a major issue. Um, Macron has got a, a, a really strong reform agenda on labour market reform, which I think will address some of the concerns with youth unemployment because it's about liberalising the labour market in France, which is, you know, something that has been impossible to do um, the last tw oh, 20, 30 years. So that will be a really big test for him. It'll, if he's able to achieve it, it, it should the economics of it are good. It should it, it should boost uh, youth employment, but you know that's herding cats in that French National Assembly so whether he can get it through or not will be well we'll find out this weekend and the next weekend mm. whether he has a majority 
Um, hi. Just to riff off um, the young man's previous question, uh, I think there was an element in there that went a bit under-addressed. Um, underemployment as well as youth unemployment, um, I think, is the big, the big thing in, in, in what his question was. Uh, we've spoken a lot about the youth, um, particularly across Britain and across Europe and the youth vote and the, the decreasing youth population and also this debate around why, oh, we're so... Um, we're, we're not as averse to the far left as we are to the far right. How much are we underestimating the youth vote and the impact of things that impact the youth, like increasing rates of casualisation and the changing nature of work and the way that that is completely denigrating the, the way of life going forward for young people? How much are we underestimating how, um, how big of an impact that's going to have electorally? We'll find out on Friday morning, I'd say. Can I get, like, a, a, a thought before that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to completely not um, give enough respect, because I think we're running out of time, give enough respect to the complexity of that mm. question. Um, I think that it's massively important, as I was saying before, I think, you know, there was this energised Scottish uh, voting uh, uh, population that was frustrated, uh, you know, and, and will remain frustrated. To my mind... Uh, the greatest uh, challenge is, and it's, you know, we share it as well, is to get youth engaged in the first mm. place because mm. one of the major themes that's undercut all this, so we didn't really address it, is just this breakdown in trust that we have in uh, institutions in all ways, in all facets of life, um, politics, finance, sport, uh, you know, everything. And <laughs> I had to bring it back to sport at some point, didn't I? <laughs> um, uh, you know, and so these are the... This is how... I agree with you, uh, you know, the attitudes of the youth and the engagement of the youth in the politics is incredibly important and, um, you know, uh, I think that it'll be fascinating to see how each, each way tumbles. I can't, I'm sorry, as I say, that's a very short and um, not, not adequate answer to your question. Uh, if, if I may, look, um, it's been amazing to see the youth activism in this British election um, especially. And they, I mean, they're very much getting behind Jeremy Corbyn. Who's offering free university who's offering and possibly free, to pay you know, back the university yeah, debt. Indeed. Yeah. Bring it back. Go very yeah. Gough Whitlam-esque policies here. Um, look, uh, it, they, the, as Mary was saying, the young people have just traditionally not gone out and voted. And, and the Brexit referendum result was a, a good example of this, where... Um, the Leave vote was was very strong amongst um, middle aged and older older voters, and uh, and quite the opposite amongst younger voters. But the younger voters didn't vote, so they're not mm. counted. Um, this is the this is one of the challenges of a voluntary voting system, like they have in the UK, and of course a challenge with polling. How do we know what the result's going to be when we don't know who's going to turn out on the day? But there's been um, a, a huge campaign to get the vote out amongst young people and activate them on, on these types of issues, be it um, education, employment opportunities. Um, and, and I do get a sense in the debates in the UK, I mean, this is, of course, from afar, that um, uh, they, they feel that the system is quite skewed towards the elderly population in Britain, that there's a lot of talk of the NHS 
looking after the elderly, pensions that look after the elderly, but, but what about us? What's the future for us? Um, and we didn't, we didn't sign up to Brexit. We might not have voted, but we, you know, by the way, we didn't really like it. So, um, you know, you, you've stolen our membership of the EU away. Um, and now what, you know, economically, what are you going to deliver for us? And they don't seem to like the Conservative Party message. Um, I, I would I would argue that I don't think the Conservatives have particularly campaigned to that constituency thinking that they're not likely to go out and vote. So the votes to be won will be the votes of the older generation, especially working class Brits. So I don't think the Conservatives don't have an answer for them. I just don't think the answers to that question have been have been communicated properly. It'd be amazing if you could actually have compulsory voting everywhere, wouldn't yes. it? And you could really actually yes. see. Yeah, I'm all for it too. It's so undemocratic, isn't it? But it's just so great. Um, we'll have to wind it up. It's been uh, fascinating. I am a little uplifted, I must say. Good. I, uh, Job I, done. Yeah, no, well, it's, uh, it's somewhat of a surprise, just a little. Um, and I, as starry-eyed as I am about Westminster, I'm very grateful uh, that I'm Australian too, at least for the time being. Um, but uh, it's been fascinating and I'm really great. Thank you so much, Mary Gearin and Georgina Downer. And thank you all for coming. And that's it for the 100th edition of The Fifth Estate, recorded over the past five years live at the Wheeler Centre. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. Feast on our archives at wheelercentre.com. Until next time, take care. Take care.